Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Chilling tales for dark nights. Want to make sure you never miss a Chilling Tales for Dark Nights video again? Be sure to subscribe and hit that bell to turn on notifications. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about meadow monsters and prophetic pasts. I'm your host for the evening, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of W.B. Stickle and James Dermond are voice talents Creepy Face, Olivia Steele, Quint Viscop, Melissa Medina, Paul J. McSorley, and Elithia Fay. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. (laughs) 
Our first tale of the evening is written by W.B. Stickle and is performed by Olivia Steele, Creepy Face, Quint Viscop, Paul J. McSorley, and Melissa Medina. There's something waiting for you in the meadow off of US 63. Viola wishes to share her unique experience with it. Without further ado, I present to you Hunger in the Meadow. We sometimes have this dream when the earth is dry and a deep sleep comes over us. A magnificent and vivid dream in which there is no we. There is just me, Viola, singular, absent the Good Samaritan and the other, who is absent me. As ever, it begins the same way, with Tully, my love, my darling, waking me in the middle of the night. Viola, he says, shaking my shoulder. What's the matter? I mutter drowsily, roused from some other reverie. Viola, he says again. I look up at him expectantly, figuring there must be some sort of emergency. But then my eyes clear, and I see him. Shoulders hunched, eyes wet, face wrenched. Baby? I say. Instead of answering, Tully begins to weep. Something he never does. He's a construction worker, a black belt in jujitsu. He's disciplined and keeps his emotions in check. It's a bizarre and awful sight. Wiping his face, he sits on the edge of the bed and puts a hand on my hip. I've done something. I wanted to keep it to myself, but I figured you should know. I sit up. Okay. His eyes dart back and forth as if searching the room for the right words. My heart thuds. I brace for impact. I know what's coming. I'm sorry, V. He says. I shouldn't have gone tonight. He attempts to explain. He'd been drinking at his office's Halloween party and somehow ended up in the supply closet with a temp named Cassandra. She tells me she has a crush on me, asks if I felt the same, and all of a sudden, she's kissing me. Before he can finish, I rush to the bathroom and vomit. Tully follows me in. He's pleading with me. His words are frantic, warped, frayed at the edges, and everything gets fuzzy, like a radio station bleeding out when you enter a tunnel. On the other side of it, I'm no longer home. I'm at Gulfport Marina, standing at the end of Moses Pier. Above me, the sky is charged with a strange yellow energy, the kind that comes with the rising sun. Despite the early hour, I'm not here alone. Three fishermen sit nearby, Focusing on their lines, I go to the railing and peer down into the Gulf of Mexico. I'm surprised to spot a group of porpoises amongst the dark, shimmering waves. Is that normal? 
I ask the nearest fisherman. Depends. He replies. On what? On how hungry they get. Inexplicably unnerved by this, I retreat to the beach and phone my sister, Leah. She picks up on the third ring. In the dream, there is no small talk. I just explain what happened. Leah reacts as I expect her to react, with fire and brimstone. Fuck him, she says. And fuck that shitty-ass redneck town of yours. Put that place in the rear view. There's only pain and misery if you stay. He'll try to win you back. Alphas don't do rejection, even when they're wrong. She's right, I know. He will try to win me back. Where would I even go? Grand Forks, dummy, move in with me. You know I got this space. It's just me and Grizzly in this big old house. Grizzly is her chocolate lab. I'm floored. It's a generous offer. Are you sure? Of course I am. Thank you. No worries. But listen, Vi, you have to hit the road ASAP. Don't give that dipshit a chance to sweet-talk you. Fighting back the tears, I promise her that I will. We hang up then, and I make my way back to the apartment. Thankfully, Dream Tully is passed out on the couch, dead to the world, as they say. Quickly and quietly, I pack for my trip. I don't own much, so it goes fast. As I'm loading up my 74 Maverick, I consider calling Jeff at the Broken Levy Diner, where I work. But I decided against it. Jeff is a slimy pig fucker who doesn't deserve the courtesy, so I don't bother. Instead, I set off on my journey. I'm ten hours ahead, trundling east on I-70, somewhere between St. Louis and Kansas City. Here, the dream commonly shifts, skipping forward in time. My body feels markedly different. Heart-leaden, head full of helium, eyes red and swollen. The toll of anguish and self-pity and a half day's worth of interstate driving. I am crying again for the millionth time of the day. The fact that Tully and I were supposed to get married in a few months weighs heavily on me. I thought I had my future figured out. To think all of that had been burned to the ground. No, I say, wiping the tears away. No fucking more. I grip the steering wheel and push the emotions away. I hate this. I decide I need a distraction. An off-the-hip side excursion to keep my mind occupied on anything but Tully. A few miles onward, I spot a roadside sign which reads, Columbia 2. Perfect, I say. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When we reach the exit, the Maverick veers right, taking it, and we motor northbound on US-63. It feels like a risky move given my lack of life experience, but I figure, fuck it. I have no schedule to follow, no deadlines to make. I'm a capable human. Why wing my way to Leah without the interstate or GPS? Initially, the diversion proved quite pleasant and effective. The traffic is light, the scenery beautiful, and there are no constructions to slow me down. As a bonus, I managed to find a radio station that plays early 90s rock. Massey Star, Temple of the Dog, Jane's Addiction, Nirvana, the good stuff. As I drive, I think not of Tully, but of Kerouac's On the Road and pretend I'm Sal Paradise and the Maverick is my Hudson. We are free. We are foolish, swerving, and honking at cows with famished eyes. Moo! I yell at them. And they just blink back, wishing they could devour me. More miles fall beneath the Maverick's tires, a steady diet of tar and asphalt. I focus on the music and let my thoughts fall down the rabbit hole of my future life. Reconnecting with Leah, meeting new friends, dating new men, getting a new job. I can almost picture it when the Maverick hits a pothole, jarring my entire world. I cry out in fright and the emotional progress I just made completely unravels. Before I know it, I'm back to Tully waking me, confessing his sins. God damn it! I yell in disgust. I draw a fist back to pound the steering wheel, but drop it when I notice something in the distance. Something troubling filled the northern horizon. A massive wall of darkness. Storm clouds, I know. Nasty ones. Dream me fiddles with the radio's dial until I find a weather station. The announcer confirms what I'm seeing. A massive storm spreading fast across the heartland. We're reading a number of funnel clouds, the announcer adds. And if you don't know, folks, those are the birthplace of tornadoes. Great, I say. Just what I need. I watch for a while as the dark wall gradually consumes the daylight, and I debate whether or not to keep going. Perhaps it'd be wiser to turn around, find a hotel, pack it in for the night, resume in the morning. Nah, don't be a sissy. It's all part of the adventure, right? The dream blurs once more at this point and skips ahead a half hour. Gangrenous black clouds now blanket the sky and the torrents have descended en masse. Rain, sleet, wind, lightning, thunder. The works. The wind is the worst, battering the maverick all about the road like cardboard. 
Out of sheer stubbornness, I hunker down and do my best to hold steady. But each mile is a battle, and I can't make heads or tails of anything in front of me before long. Oh, fuck this, I finally say and pull the maverick onto the highway's shoulder. The wind and rain work furiously to get at me. They want to cut me to pieces. I lock the doors, shut off the engine, and use controlled breathing to relax. It works quite well, and I return to the rabbit hole of my future existence in time. I wonder what it'll be like in a year. Better. Worse. Will my heartache be fully healed? Will I manage to move on, find some measure of happiness up north? Is such a thing even possible once your world is destroyed? A hundred such questions assail my mind. I'm debating about going back to college when a huge semi roars by, scaring the shit out of me. Jesus! I shout, watching the truck's taillights disappear into the night. Once it's gone from sight, I switch on my headlights. I'm delighted to see the storm has calmed down. It's not raining anymore. I fire up the Maverick and ease back onto the highway. The Maverick growls as it reaches cruising speed. Resuming my journey feels unusually good, yet inside the dream I know the feeling won't last. Something else lies ahead that will change everything. Miles down the road, my intuition proves correct as a web of blue-white filaments arc across the heavens. Flash, flash, flicker flash, revealing to me the stuff of nightmares. A mammoth bank of funnel clouds rolling over my little stretch of Missouri backwoods. I gasp at the sight, both amazed and terrified. The second flashes show me my quandary's true extent. A ravenous, churning vortex directly above US-63. I see black tendrils looping down towards the earth at its edges like the feelers of some grand monstrosity. My dream heart sinks and my gaze begins to bounce between the road and the sky. I'm watching as one of the westernmost tendrils contacts the ground when I realize my eyes have lingered too long from the road. Aiming them back, I'm stunned to find the highway in front of me rapidly running out, leading to what looks like a great wall of nothingness. I stomp on the brake pedal hard, and the car skids sideways, tires squealing like pigs in the slaughterhouse. I join in by screaming for all I'm worth. The car slides for what seems like forever before tumbling off the road. There's a moment of weightlessness, then an avant-garde orchestra of glass and metal crashing together, culminating in a sudden, deafening crunch. The dream always blurs here, all static and distorted. When clarity returns, everything is pitch black. I feel disjointed, out of phase with the world. Memory fragments come in slow trickles. I remember Tully, talking to Leah, fleeing Gulfport, the detour, the storm, the sliding and the tumbling. Oh, fuck. I groan, worrying I'm still in the Maverick. I was trapped in my seat, waiting for a spark to set the whole thing ablaze. 
I wriggle around to see if my limbs work, not wanting to die like a witch. They do, but just barely. As feeling returns to them, I become aware of a peculiar sensation, that of cold, wet grass pressing against my entire backside. It seems that I'm not in the car after all. I'm in a soggy field of some sort. Vaguely, I comprehend I'm damaged, though the dream pain doesn't quite register. What does is the feeling of rain upon my face, arms, and feet, which are poorly covered by a white tank top, jeans, and sandals. Alive, I say, shuddering at the cold. I'm alive. I sit up in the dark and hug my knees to my chest. My situation comes crashing down on me. I'm lost and alone. The maverick is totaled. And my cell phone is God knows where. A surge of self-pity swirls in my head. And I am tempted to give in to it. But my inner voice refuses to let me. No chance, Vi, it says. You're stronger than that. Just pull yourself together and figure out your next step. I wipe the drizzle from my face. Okay, I'm okay. I can do this. I just gotta figure out where I am and go from there. Almost on cue, Mother Nature sets the heavens alight with vibrant lightning. The flashing only lasts a few seconds, but it's enough to provide a decent snapshot of my surroundings. It appears I've ended up in a huge, grassy meadow. One was lined with bushes and trees on three sides, and a tall ledge of stony earth ran the fourth slank. Along the top of this stony ledge is a layer of asphalt, which I deduce to be US-63. When the sky lights up again, I search the ledge and make two significant observations. One what I thought to be a great wall of nothingness, was just the highway veering sharply to the right when it reached the meadow's edge. Two, the maverick flew off the road so easily because no guardrail existed along the treacherous curve. What? How in the goddamn fuck can there be no guardrail? I mule at this last bit, failing to understand it. Above, the lightning fades returning the meadow to darkness. It doesn't make sense, does it? A voice answers from somewhere to my left. The words hit me like a jolt of electricity, causing me to cry out in fright and scrabble backward in the dark. After a few yards, I slam into something big and metal. The maverick, I think, and cry out again. Careful there. The voice says. No need to hurt yourself any further. Who the hell are you? I blurt out. Where'd you come from? Whoever it is disregards my injuries and squishes closer in the darkness. You're lucky. They reply with a countrified twang, along with something else I can't quite identify. That was quite a tumble. But you seem to have come out of it okay. Or mostly okay. I asked you a question, I fire back trying to sound tough. Two questions, actually. The other says, panting as they do. Both reasonable. Don't seem likely anybody is down here on a night like this, huh? Well, don't worry. 
We live here is all. Heard the commotion. Came to have a look-see. Oh, I say dumbly. I scan the darkness for any sign of a house. A light in a window, maybe. Or maybe a porch light. I see nothing. Was anyone traveling with you? They ask, and I hear that other thing again. A faint sort of echo in their voice. Like it's layered. Maybe in the car. Maybe not as lucky as you. Admitting that I'm alone seems foolhardy. So I lie. They went to wave someone down, on the road. We've already dialed 911, though, so someone should be here soon to help. Dialed? The person replies with more of that panting. How? I try to stand, but my legs don't cooperate. With my cell phone. Cell phone? They say as if it's a foreign concept. Yeah, I say. My husband Tully just went up to... I trail off there. The words husband and Tully catching in my brain. Words that should have gone together, but never would. Must have wandered pretty far then. My unseen companion says. I don't see anyone else. Just you. He'll be back soon enough. I insist, not liking his insinuation. Sure. 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 They pant, almost like a dog. I peer into the darkness, wondering how they could see anything down here. I'm curious if you noticed it. They say. Noticed what? The guardrail. Comes their panting reply. Or lack of a guardrail. The echo in their voice is more prominent. Looks like sabotage to me. Like someone put a lot of time and effort into taking it apart. Bolt by bolt. I attempt to unpack what they're telling me, but my mind keeps homing in on the echo thing. Am I hearing it? Or is it perhaps an invention of a concussed brain? What? I say. Who would do something like that? Time. My companion answers. So much time. A silence passes between us, and my companion moves closer in the darkness. I'm about to ask them what's wrong with their voice when the sky erupts with lightning. In the strobing light, I see my companion for the first time. I see that they are neither men nor women. They are a hulking, naked mockery of a human, standing perhaps seven feet tall, with strange gelatinous skin that reminds me of partially melted butter. Despite their height, they appear hunched over, their long sinuous arms stretched to the ground, and the rest pulled in a gnarled mass of flesh and bone. They have drawn to within a few feet of me, with their elongated heads seemingly poised to strike. All alone, they say as the meadow goes dark again. I try to scream, but my body betrays me. I am the deer in the headlights, the possum imitating its death. All alone, yes. They repeat. Yes, I hear myself say meekly. Yes. It agrees as a new wave of lightning assaults the heavens. 
Their grotesque face is now inches from my feet, and I see two large nostrils flaring. They are sniffing me. A predator savoring the smell of captured prey. The flicker flashing persists, and I see the snout break open, unveiling a cavernous maw lined with large rock-like teeth. Their sight makes me think of little red riding hood standing next to her grandmother's bed. Please, I say, and I am ashamed of how easily I'm giving in to the surreal fate. I should be running, fighting, anything but this. The lightning begins to fade and thunder rolls in the distance. I expect to see the mouth lunging from my legs. Instead, it skews toward the highway. My companion says with what sounds like exhausted anticipation. The meadow goes dark, and I hear wet footsteps scamper away. An afterthought of lightning shows me I'm all alone. Eons seem to pass. Then I hear a familiar rumbling noise. I look to the highway and spot the headlights of a truck slowly approaching the dangerous curve. The truck stops just short of the ledge, and I hear the driver crank their handbrake. That ratcheting sound triggers something in me. It is a desire to act, move, get away from the meadow and its repulsive dweller. Obeying it, I scramble to my feet, yell out for help, and lumber toward the headlights. The highway's ledge is perhaps only 20 yards away, but it feels like 20 miles. After a few awkward paces, my legs remember how to function, and I pick up speed. Help! The truck's driver's side door opens, and a figure steps out. They move into the darkness behind the headlights. Someone out there? They call out. Yes! I yell, a quarter of the way to the ledge. Help me, please! The figure steps in front of one of the headlights and crouches down by the ledge. It's a man, I see, dressed in a green hooded raincoat and jeans. Dear Jesus! He calls out. Did you drive off the road? Are you okay? Yes! I exclaim, mere yards from the ledge. This close, I can see the man's face. Mid-forties, haggard, in need of a shave. It's the best face I've ever seen. He sees I'm running and drops down onto his chest. Whoa there, miss. He says. He extends an arm, anticipating my intention to scale the high ledge. Easy. I hit the ledge full force, jumping for all I'm worth. Considering how high the ledge is, I do quite well and propel myself halfway up. I thrust out my hand and my fingers brush his tips. I keep pumping my legs, but the ledge is too slick and my momentum shifts. I fall backward, landing on my butt. Lord a mess. The man says, standing up. He sees me clamoring to my feet for another go at the ledge. Wait, wait, wait. Look, I got a rope in the cab. Calm down a sec and I'll get it. I'll throw it down and pull you up. Okay, but hurry, there's something down here. My voice trembles through the command. The man's face tightens. What? Did you hit a deer or something? Is it still alive? No, I ran off the road because the guardrail's missing, but that doesn't matter. Just get the rope and hurry. The man, my good Samaritan, 
mutters something about it happening again, then darts to the truck, rummages around in the cab and returns to the ledge. He ties a quick knot at the ledge and casts the rope down to me. I snatch it readily, wrapping the slack around my left arm. The man wraps his end around one hand and pulls the rope taut. All right, miss. He says. If you're ready, I'll start pulling on. Just fucking pull already! I reply, feeling my time running out. The man grumbles to himself and starts pulling. I jerk forward, lurching up the ledge several feet. I hold the rope tight and try to help by stepping in time with his pulling efforts. Up, up I go, heart racing. The man grunts with effort and I hear him panting. That's it, he says, panting harder. After another pull, I realize the panting isn't coming from him. It's coming from behind me. A spike of panic shoots up my spine. Oh shit, I cry. Hurry, mister, hurry! My fervor gives the good Samaritan pause, and he stops pulling for a second. What's wrong? What? He says, peering past me into the darkness below. The second stretches on for ages, and I see the good Samaritan's expression change. I open my mouth to scream at him, but the thing's massive, prickly hand closes around my left calf and throws me backward. It happens so quickly, so forcefully, causing all my muscles to clench. Instead of letting go of the rope to spare the Good Samaritan my fate, I grip it tighter, bringing him down into the darkness with me. In a blink, I'm on my back in the wet meadow. I let go of the rope, but it was too late. My breath ejected from my lungs. The Good Samaritan crashes into the earth a few feet away, one of his boots catching me in the temple. It's been so long, the meadow thing says from somewhere close by. We had lost all hope, but here you are, two of you. There is a genuine sadness spliced into their odd, echoing tone. Their feet shuffle in the wet grass, and I feel their hot, stinking breath on my feet. We're sorry, they say. For what comes next, we remember the pain. I hear a soft growl and envision the jaw coming unhinged. There's a whoosh of movement, and I feel the teeth sink in, tearing through the flesh and bone of my shins and calves. The pain is a revelation, even in the dream. I scream and hear it chewing on my feet. A swallow, and the second bite comes, severing me just below the knees. On and on it goes slowly devouring me upwards. Thighs, pelvis, abdomen, chest, arms, shoulders, head. Through it all, my consciousness is preserved, and I perceive the meadow thing telling me a story about itself and how it came to be in the meadow. I listen closely and find that doing so helps lessen the suffering. After the last swallow, I slip into a new kind of oblivion and just swim there. I hear the voices and the good Samaritan screaming as he endures the same. When the screaming inevitably stops, I sense, rather than see, an explosion of rippling light 
and feel myself take root in the huge mound of undulating flesh. I feel it bubble and writhe, and a part of it begins to split open like a ruptured placenta. Two masses, one big, one small, leech from the center of the flesh, delivering offspring from the womb. The process is white-hot agony, but it's mercifully over in seconds. After this odd separation, I am myself reborn. The grandmother becomes the wolf. I am not alone. With me are two others, the good Samaritan and that which belongs to the meadow. A new form of sentience engulfs me, us, and we commune together, our thoughts and memories merging into one. I feel a strange harmony in this, and together we open our new eyes. We expect to find darkness, but the world is no longer defined by light and dark. Our eyes take in everything. As they do, we become aware of a naked man and what appears to be a full-grown German shepherd standing in front of us. They are both wild-eyed and smiling and look upon us with grief and bemusement. I'm sorry. The man rasps. Beside him, the dog whines, seeming to agree. We grunt and the transaction is complete. The man nods and faces the ledge. He looks up at the waiting truck, at the open driver's side door, and bursts into a mad scramble for it. His gait is awkward and lumbering, but somehow he manages to scale the entire muddy ledge in one try. The shepherd follows suit, scrambling up to the highway with a little more difficulty than the man, making it all the same. Once they reach the truck, the shepherd dives straight into the cab. The man slides in after him, slamming the door shut. Moments later, the truck heaves forward and takes off into the night. We track the vehicle as it charges southward along US-63. When it disappears into obscurity, our eyes gravitate to the heavens. The Good Samaritan and I feel two new sensations unlike anything we've ever experienced. An immense love of the rain and an all-consuming hunger. The remaining member of our triumvirate, the meadow thing itself, growls at the hunger, and we join in, emitting a guttural roar. After a space, our breath relents and our twisted form retreats further back into the meadow taking up post amongst a thicket of shrubs and bushes. As we settle into the earth, our eyes peer intently at the gap in the guardrail, and we begin to understand each other. Our longings, our ambitions, our sins, our regrets, and our dreams. Speaking of which, this is where my special dream ends. The others always liked this one the best. It helps pass the time. That endless parade of hours, days, months, and years that we lay in wait for the new rain to come. For the darkness to descend 
We need to move for the earth to swallow up the moisture and for someone new to come and take our place. Someone like the two of you. Please don't be afraid. We know it hurts, excruciatingly so. But it's necessary. It's why the meadow exists. And it's almost over. Just a little more to go. See there? All done. We'll start on your wife next, and soon. You, her, and the meadow thing have the most interesting dreams of all. You'll be together in every way imaginable, able to share each other's dreams. Oh yes, your wife is a fighter. She resists despite the agony. I'm halfway through her and she's still shrieking. So good, so good. Ah, there we are, into the torso. It's too much. She goes quiet, giving in. Can you feel her? She's angry at you, at what you did. So very good. Okay, all right. We're finished with her now. The other is sated. Which means it's time for us to go. Resume our journeys and live again. So we guess this is goodbye and farewell. May your days and months pass in peaceful slumber. I'm coming, Leah. At long last. I'm coming home. I hope you enjoyed Hunger in the Meadow, as written by W.B. Stickle and voiced by Olivia Steele, Creepyface, Quint Viscop, Paul J. McSorley, and Melissa Medina. Author W.B. Stickle's work can be found on our website, www.creepypastastories.com under the name Stickle. That's S-T-I-C-K-E-L. Hear more of Olivia Steele right here on our podcast network and YouTube episodes, as well as on her own YouTube channel called Scarily Olivia. Voice actress Melissa Medina's work can be found on the official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as her website, hearmelissa.com. That's H-E-A-R-M-E-L-I-S-S-A dot com. Creepy Faces performances can be found right here on our very own network, as well as on his YouTube channel called by the same name. Quint Viscop is the newest voice actor and sound producer on our team. You can find more of him at Mylodon Recorders. That's M-Y-L-O-D-O-N, folks. Voice actor Paul J. McSorley's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary podcast. You can also keep up with him weekly on his new show, Fear from the Heartland, which debuted its fourth episode just this past Wednesday. Capture the magic or the madness <laughs> from the very beginning. And check out his show today, You'll be glad you did. And after dropping by, don't forget to let him know you heard him here on this show. 
Our second tale of the evening is written by James Dermond and performed by Elithia Fay. Charlotte Evans plans to spend her summer at her aunt's isolated house in the countryside, the boyhood home of her recently deceased father. The idyllic scene slowly becomes sinister as Charlotte begins to sense a ghostly presence somehow tied to the house and to her family's dark past. Now, without further ado, I present to you Matilda Graves. The summer house that Charlotte Evans came to stay in belonged to her father's family. Charlotte's mother never went there and her father hadn't returned to his family's home for many years. Both were gone and Charlotte was now alone, an only child. Her aunt on her father's side had offered the place to Charlotte as a means of experiencing a moment of respite before beginning her graduate studies later in the fall. I don't like leaving you here by yourself, especially with no way to drive into town, Charlotte's friend Amelia reminded her. I know we've already talked this over, but I still don't like it. Amelia put one of Charlotte's bags on the house's antiquated kitchen floor and looked around the compact space. Though the small room was clean and tidy, the kitchen sink and other fixtures were something from decades past, their surfaces dull and tarnished with age. Isolation is what I crave right now, Charlotte said, sighing as she parted the kitchen curtains, rays of sunlight flooding in. Sometimes, I couldn't even get out of bed after my breakup with Ben. I just need to be alone. No offense. She sat down at the kitchen table and began to rummage through one of the brown paper grocery bags nearby, placed there by Amelia. Amelia stood by the open door, the pleasant sounds of the woods in the early summer ambient in the background. Will you have enough food for three months? Amelia asked, frowning as she opened a kitchen cabinet door. Taking out a blue and white box and reading its side, she commented, I couldn't drink powdered milk. Yuck. I hope you don't starve. I'll be fine, Charlotte reassured her as if dismissing a petulant child. I think that's all the bags. Thanks for helping me with shopping in town. Charlotte took two of the cans from the grocery bag and stood next to Amelia, putting them into the cabinet with the powdered milk. I've got enough food to last until the end of summer. If I really need to get to town, I can walk. It'll take hours, but I can do it. What if you can't walk? Amelia retorted hastily. The phone here isn't even hooked up. Amelia leaned against the kitchen counter as Charlotte stashed away the canned groceries. It's a risk I'm willing to take, Charlotte replied. I'm young and fit. What could possibly happen to me? She grasped the door to the kitchen and then put an arm around Amelia, hugging her for a moment. I'll see you in 83 days. You have a good summer on the water with Ethan. I'm sorry I won't be able to go boating with you two this time. Charlotte put a hand above her eyes, shading them away from the bright afternoon sunlight to watch Amelia drive away. A dirt and gravel driveway led away from the two-story colonial-style house, a paved road then connecting the house to town. A copse of sweeping ash trees hid the house, which stood alone on its own wooded lot with no close neighbors in either direction. Wandering in the woods behind the house, Charlotte decided to let the rest of the groceries sit in their bags for a while. Everything perishable had already been put away in the refrigerator. Charlotte would have to do without anything fresh once those supplies were gone unless she felt like taking the long walk to town. 
The woods were quiet and tranquil with chirping birds and the soft rustling of leaves in the wind. She strolled along a narrow deer path that eventually opened up into a clearing. In its center stretched a large pond, broad and stagnant, its opposite side lined by dense woods. Looking out over the pond from its sandy shore, Charlotte noticed how murky the waters appeared. Little sunlight made it to the surface. Charlotte thought it must be very deep at the center, watching the wind churn over the water, tumbling white clouds drifting overhead. I'll come back later and take another look. The old house seemed to breathe as Charlotte walked up its steps, groaning as she opened the front door. I'm glad Aunt Alice keeps this place in decent shape, thought Charlotte. I'll have to visit the elderly couple she employs when I'm in town again, probably in a few weeks. The house's attic was cramped, filled with musty furniture, boxes, and a worn steamer trunk, a broken strap dangling from its side. Charlotte had waited until morning to visit the upstairs attic and explore its treasures. She'd been too tired after the long drive with Amelia yesterday. Opening the trunk, Charlotte began to dig through its contents, putting aside threadbare vintage clothing and leather-bound books. At last, she picked up an old photo album. I wonder why Aunt Alice doesn't just throw most of this stuff out, Charlotte asked herself as she turned the dusty pages of the album. These clothes are just a feast for the moths at this point. The photo album held pictures of her extended family from years ago, including people she didn't recognize. The black and white photos were sometimes discolored and there were several empty spaces in the album as if photos had been taken out. Charlotte found photos of her father from when he was a boy and then a young man. He'd grown up in this house before moving away, just like his siblings. Putting the book aside, Charlotte took the last of the clothes out of the trunk, something falling out as she did. She reached down to pick up a photo from the floor and examined it. Its picture was of her father standing next to a young, pretty woman. He was smiling. In the background was the house as it would have been many years earlier. Turning the photo over, someone had written, Warren and Matilda, and then marked it with a date. Looks like Dad had a girl from before Mom, Charlotte mused to herself. I don't remember Mom or Dad ever mentioning a Matilda. I hope Aunt Alice doesn't notice, like she'll even check. Charlotte tucked the faded, heavily creased photo into the back of the photo album and then tried to put everything back into the trunk in its original order. Rising from the trunk, Charlotte climbed back downstairs to check the mail, closing the attic door above her. Aunt Alice said I should collect it for her while I was here. She opened the front door and walked along the driveway to the sheltering trees and the mailbox hanging from a post near the road. She pried open the box's lid and found nothing inside. Someone was coming up the road on a bicycle. As the cyclist grew closer, Charlotte could see it was a young woman wearing a summer dress. The young woman waved a hand and then brought her bicycle to a stop near the mailbox, resting her sneakered feet on the pavement. Good morning, the woman said gaily, smiling at Charlotte. It looks like the old place has a guest. I'm here for a while, Charlotte replied, returning the woman's smile as best she could. How's sitting for my Aunt Alice? Nobody lives here anymore, and my aunt wanted the house occupied before it was sold. Are you from town? Charlotte studied the woman as she waited for an answer. She was naturally beautiful with flowing, honey-colored hair and striking green eyes. A real knockout. I'm not from town, but I am from around here, the woman answered, still smiling and genial. Charlotte considered this answer somewhat puzzling. What's your name? The woman said. 
Charlotte Evans, pleased to meet you. Charlotte held out her hand, but the woman only continued to grip her bicycle's handlebars. I knew a boy named Evans once, the woman said quietly, her smile fading. A long time ago. She turned away from Charlotte for a moment and looked behind her as if examining the house. And who are you? May I know your name? Charlotte asked, almost insisting, feeling a sudden discomfort at the break of conversation. Without a word, the woman began to pedal off. Charlotte watched her glide down the road, her bike bell lightly chiming. Finally, the woman disappeared around a winding curve, gone beyond the leafy trees. She didn't turn back or offer an explanation. She just rode silently away. Bewildered, Charlotte returned to the house to make lunch, thinking she'd pick up again with her summer reading list in the evening. She briefly paused, wondering why a young woman would be riding such an old-fashioned bike. The night outside was cool. It was still early summer. The fireplace crackled, the only light source in the living room other than the lamp next to Charlotte's armchair. Charlotte turned a page in her hardback book, nodding for a moment beneath the fireplace's soothing warmth. When the professor had gone, Sergei Ivanovich turned to his brother. After reading the first sentence of the new chapter, Charlotte yawned, thinking, I can't finish this chapter tonight. Maybe tomorrow. Resting the book on the side table, Charlotte then heard a floorboard creak upstairs, followed by the sound of soft footsteps. A thud echoed from the upstairs to the floor below as if someone had just put their weight onto its steps. Charlotte's lamp dimmed and flickered, the fireplace's flames dwindling behind her. Squinting in the room's low light, Charlotte glanced cautiously toward the living room's open door. More footsteps echoed in the hallway, and then the shadow fell over the entrance. Someone was there, standing in the hall, waiting. Hello? I know you're there. Charlotte said, now standing in front of her chair. She reached for a fireplace poker and held it firmly, ready to confront her intruder. There was a mournful sigh and a breeze gushed through the room, its odor faded and decayed, smelling subtly of Finland. The shadow then receded, pulling back into the dark of the hallway until it finally vanished. Charlotte hurried toward the light switch on the wall and slapped it on. The ceiling lamp bathed the room in bright light. No one was there. Poker in hand, Charlotte checked the upstairs bedrooms and then searched the house's ground floor. Turning on the kitchen lights, she scrutinized the nighttime yard from the front porch and then locked the front and side doors. I was almost asleep, Charlotte thought, trying to reassure herself, her uneasiness still palpable. It was just a dream. I'm all alone out here. Charlotte put the house keys into her jeans pocket and then checked her billfold for the cash she had brought with her. Charlotte determined that the walk to town would likely take three or more hours. It's a sunny day and I can make an excursion to it. But I should have asked Amelia to put her bike in the car trunk for me. I'm just too independent for my own good, I guess. She walked to the back of the house deciding she might find an old bicycle in the house's root cellar. I haven't looked here. Charlotte thought as she opened its swinging double doors and stepped inside. The root cellar was dry and lined with jars resting on wooden shelves. Charlotte carefully descended the short set of stairs to the earthen floor and began to search around. The cellar was dark. She could find no suspended light bulb, but the midday sun streaming from the open door supplied enough light. 
A rusted bicycle leaned against the far wall, a wire basket affixed to its front. Charlotte touched the corroded bell on the left handlebar, finding that it still rang. Standing over the antique bike, Charlotte thought it seemed oddly familiar. It finally came to her. It looked as the same bicycle of that strange girl she had seen a few weeks ago. This isn't going to get me to town, Charlotte concluded. I'll just have to walk. Closing the cellar door behind her, Charlotte joined the road and made a steady pace on foot to her destination. Aunt Alice had given Charlotte the address of the couple who had been keeping her house since last year, asking that Charlotte check in with them at least once during her visit. When she finally arrived, Charlotte found that the small town was clustered around a charming main street peppered with shops. It ended with a white and gray church, its roof formed into a steeple. Charlotte found a side street that led to several rows of small houses, their exteriors all alike. The elderly couple lived in a cottage past the houses on the town's outskirts. The cottage was tiny and barely large enough for two people, but quaint and cozy. Charlotte stood on the front steps and knocked on the door. A withered, older woman answered, short and white-haired. Hello, young lady. How may I help you? She asked, her smile kindly but vacant. I'm Charlotte Evans, Alice Evans's niece, Charlotte replied. I've been staying at the house these past weeks. Aunt Alice asked me to check in with you once I got settled in. Yes, Charlotte, we've been waiting for you. Please, come in, the woman said, stepping away from the door. Meet my husband, Charles. An elderly man stooped and, walking stiffly, stopped at the end of the hall. He waved for a moment, then shuffled away, seemingly preoccupied. Charles helps me with the house when he can, the woman said, her tone plaintive. But some days he's like this. Neither one of us has much time left, but come in. Stepping inside, Charlotte saw that the home was well kept and pleasantly decorated with decades worth of family heirlooms, treasured keepsakes, and portrait photographs filling the living room. The woman slipped into the nearby kitchen and soon returned with porcelain teacups and a teapot resting on a tray. She set the tray on the low table in front of Charlotte. As the woman poured Charlotte a cup of hot tea, she said, I'm Iris. I've known your aunt for many years. She and your father attended school in Winslow. I worked in the school cafeteria, you see. I've lived in Winslow my whole life. Pleased to meet you, Iris, Charlotte said, noticing that Charles was now nowhere to be seen. I hadn't really seen much of Aunt Alice until a few years ago when Dad passed away. Yes, Alice told us about that. Such a shame, Iris said, her eyes sad. What about your mother? She was from Winslow as well, you know. Mom's gone as well, some time before Dad, Charlotte replied, her voice full of regret. But she was taken by a freak accident, not an illness. I always thought I'd see them grow old together, but it wasn't to be. Iris poured herself a cup of tea and then took a sip. Your father rarely came back to Winslow after he married your mother, Iris said, her tone becoming steadier. He lost his first love here, long before her. I suppose that was his reason. Who was that? Charlotte queried, her interest suddenly piqued. Mom and Dad never talked much about their early years in this small town. I guess they just wanted to forget about it after moving away and creating a new life for themselves. That's a shame, my dear, Iris answered. When he was a young man, your father loved a girl named Matilda Graves. 
They were planning to be wed, but just before the wedding, she vanished and disappeared without a trace. People in town said it was cold feet, but I never believed any of it, Iris confided. Everything she'd ever known was in Winslow, and she loved your father more than anything else. Matilda would often talk of the children they would have someday. As I understand it, she's still listed as a missing person. Charlotte thought back to the photograph she had seen in the attic trunk, her father with a young woman, the name Matilda written on its back. Asking quickly, Charlotte said, Then how did Dad ever meet my mom if he was to be married to someone else? They must have gotten together soon after. They did, Iris replied, her answer sharp. Audrey swooped in and soon they were dating again. They married shortly after. Your mother had been Warren's steady girlfriend for a while before his engagement to Matilda. Well, I don't know what to say, Charlotte said, finishing her cup of tea. But like I told you, Mom and Dad seldom discussed their hometown. They were distant, almost absentee parents in many ways. There was a silence. Both women peered into their teacups, neither looking at the other. Well, Charlotte finally said, breaking the silence. Thank you for the tea. It was lovely. Will you be stopping by sometime this summer? Yes, certainly, my dear, Iris answered, seemingly happy to change the subject. I'll bring Charles with me if he's able. We drive up to the house. I'm not a young thing like you, you know. Iris saw Charlotte to the door and waved as the younger woman walked away. Charlotte found her way to Main Street and then the path home. It was late afternoon and the sun would be setting by the time she arrived back at the house. The early summer leaves shaded Charlotte as she ambled along the roadside. Her light canvas sneakers were dusty from her long walk and her arm ached from carrying the bag of groceries. The sun had become burnt orange. It sank slowly below the trees, shielding the road from the horizon. Charlotte was tired, surprised that the low-paced journey to and from town had taken so much out of her. Far ahead in the opposite lane, a bicycle sped toward her. The bicycle's bell chimed once and then again, warning pedestrians of its arrival. Charlotte turned to follow the rider as she rolled past, finally seeing the woman's face in the dimming light. The writer looked like a woman, but Charlotte couldn't quite make her out. The young woman's features were pallid white, like an alabaster death mask. She stared fixedly ahead, not glancing at Charlotte as she rode past. It was as if she was entirely unaware of her presence. The bicycle hastened away, eventually vanishing into the shadows of the first hours of the evening. Shaken, Charlotte thought. That looked like the girl I met at the mailbox, but she looked... Strange, like she was sick. As soon as she got home, Charlotte went to sleep, exhausted by her exertions. Tomorrow, she will try to find out more about Matilda Graves. Charlotte frowned as she studied the picture of her father with the young woman. It's the same girl, she thought, the one I saw at the mailbox on the bike. But it can't be. This picture is decades old. Putting the photo away, Charlotte climbed down from the attic to explore the woods behind the house again, hoping to clear her mind. The pond was as she had left it, luring with scores of lily pads and lines of thin foam floating by its banks. Charlotte noticed a moss-covered rowboat, its oars missing, propped up against a tree not far from the pond for the first time. The rowboat seemed as if it hadn't been used for many years but Charlotte supposed it had probably once taken short trips on the water. 
The pond was large after all, almost a small lake. The wind rustled across the water, causing waves to cascade toward the shore. Charlotte then heard her name on the wind. Someone was calling to her. Charlotte, the voice whispered, its sound both distant and intimate. Her name again. Charlotte. It was a woman's voice, but Charlotte was alone by the water. Near the ponds on Fathom Center, a white shape formed. Slowly it drifted toward the shore. Charlotte peered ahead, the overcast day offering nothing. As the shape came closer, it began to rise from the water. First a head wearing a veil appeared, then a woman's midsection, and finally, wading through the shallows, a woman wearing a full white wedding dress. The woman moved toward Charlotte steadily, her expression partially concealed by the veil. But, as far as Charlotte could tell, it was unimaginably malevolent. Charlotte opened her eyes, seeing the star-filled sky above her. The evening was very still, with a bright full moon bathing the grass and leaves nearby with a soft glow. The sky was no longer cloudy as it had been before. Charlotte realized she was somewhere in the woods, the pond no longer in view. Where? The water. Her head pounding, she stood and peered around. She spied the house with a wave of relief, its roof jutting distantly through a tangle of trees. Within minutes, Charlotte had reached the front steps and pushed open the door. She heard voices coming from the kitchen. Charlotte stood at the kitchen's threshold and stared, horror-struck. The two women were seated at the kitchen table, a tea service between them. One was her mother as a younger woman, and the other was Matilda Graves. They were engaged in a friendly dialogue. I'm so glad you could come over to discuss the wedding, Charlotte's mother said amiably. Warren couldn't be here as he had to help his parents in town. They'll be back tonight. I'm pleased, but I'll have to get going soon, Matilda said. It's still a fair ride back to town on my bike. Warren had a list of things we need to take care of before the big day. Did he leave it with you? Why, yes, Charlotte's mother replied. It's right here. Finish your tea and we'll discuss it. She placed a few sheets of paper in front of Matilda and then excused herself for a moment. When she came back, Matilda complained of feeling drowsy. I'm sorry you're not feeling well, dear, Charlotte's mother said, a smile forming on her curved lips. Perhaps you need to lie down. That's a good idea, Matilda said, nodding. Just for a moment, then I'll be fine. Charlotte's mother helped Matilda to her feet, embracing her with one arm. No hard feelings, then? Matilda asked, pausing to look at Charlotte's mother in the face. You and Warren didn't work out, but we love each other so much. You want him to be happy, don't you? As the two stood before the kitchen table, Charlotte's mother was silent and then replied, Of course. That's why Warren will be with me instead. Matilda grew dizzy and began to swoon, falling against Charlotte's mother. Charlotte's mother pushed her away, letting Matilda fall to the floor with a crash. Lying on her side, Matilda weakly attempted to grasp something with which to pull herself up. Charlotte's mother stood over her wordlessly, then walked out of the room. She returned with a large trunk sporting thick leather handles. You'll fit if I fold you in, Charlotte's mother told Matilda, her words drenched in venom. But I'm going to take this out to that pond first. Don't go anywhere. Not that you can. The specters faded and Charlotte heard the ladder to the attic descend with a loud thud. 
Charlotte left the kitchen almost in a trance and stood before the attic's ladder. Slowly, she reached out and began to haul herself up. The steamer trunk was closed. Charlotte stood by the hatch, unmoving, tears forming in her eyes. Slowly, the trunk's lid began to yawn open. There was a pause. A terrible silence filled the dark space. A hand shot from the trunk, the fingers distended and claw-like. Charlotte flinched but didn't move. Foul water began to pour from the trunk, forming pools and rivulets around Charlotte's feet. Matilda rose jerkily, her wedding veil flat against her mottled skin, her eyes bulging, her face bloated and decomposed. Charlotte remained in her spot, paralyzed with fear. She could only watch as Matilda stepped from the trunk and drew closer in slow, loping strides. Charlotte could feel the ghost's chill breath on her bare neck. Matilda leaned in and whispered something in Charlotte's ear in a voice like dead leaves. The sheriff looked down at Iris, who stood next to the attic's ladder below him. She wore a worried expression that changed to one of shock when the sheriff spoke to her. She's up here, ma'am. She's been dead for at least a few days, given the state of this corpse. I'm coming back down to call the coroner. Iris stepped aside as the sheriff climbed down. Curtly, he folded the ladder back up and then closed the attic's hatch. There's no need for you to be here, Mrs. Martin. There's nothing you can do for Miss Evans now. We'll take your statement in town. Night fell over the empty house, its doors locked and bolted from the outside. The winds rippled over the pond's surface, its waters darkish and foreboding. From within the attic, the sounds of sobbing cut through the dark, agonized and afraid. They were coming from the closed steamer trunk, its last memento collected. I hope you enjoyed Matilda Graves, as written by James Dermond and performed by Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's newcomer, Elithia Fay. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. <laughs>
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.